This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. Today's guest is Nicholas Alexander. Nicholas has over 10 years of experience in nonprofit and public administration, workforce development, criminal justice reform, and community and labor organizing. Today, Nicholas is the executive director of the Reentry Success Center in Richmond, California, where he provides wraparound services to folks returning to the community from jail and from prison and to their families. Welcome. Thanks. Uh, so, I don't think all of our viewers are going to know what reentry means. So, um, why don't you start by telling us when you're leading the Reentry Success Center, uh, what does your population look like? Well, just to clarify the term reentry, so people think about reentry. Uh, as the process that begins when someone is released from jail or prison. It actually starts um, many months and years uh, in, in other cases uh, before the release uh, from custody. So as soon as someone is charged with a crime, um, some folks are actually brought into custody at that point um, rather than released to return to court at a later date. And so at that point, uh, there's things that can begin to happen in that person's life that will affect them for the rest of their life. So, for example, if you or I were detained uh, mm -hmm. for a crime or maybe even for something uh, civil, right, uh, like in the case of immigration, mm -hmm. um, we may lose our job. Mm -hmm. Our kids might miss us. You know, our families might know, not know where we are and we have no way to contact them. So there's things that can really affect your psyche, affect your, uh, your finances, affect your family life, uh, that, that go on for the rest of your life. So when we talk about reentry, we really have to look at, uh, look upstream mm -hmm. and see what are the things that are really gonna affect you later in life. So um, reentry begins with uh, when you're charged uh, with a crime and of course uh, what happens following that, that uh, allegation. What that means in terms of population, right, is not only people who are convicted of a crime, mm -hmm. but people who were simply charged uh, or with something uh, civil. So our population uh, at the Reentry Success Center looks like America. Hmm. There are so many folks uh, who end up part of the system of mass incarceration or indirectly impacted by it. And that's what I mean by uh, families impacted when someone is detained. So if I go to jail, my son um, is going to be hugely impacted by that uh, system and how it's impacted my life. So the families who are impacted by, uh, by incarceration are welcome to become members of the center. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of a new thing for our community for the reentry community is bringing the families uh, in to receive services as well as those who are actually being held in custody. So when I say our, our, our population looks like America, I really mean it. So it's women, it's uh, men, it's all sorts of ethnicities and, mm -hmm. and races. And it's kids and, because you're dealing with families. And we have kids who come in as well. Less kids. Yeah. Uh, we tend to work with partners who are specialized with providing services to kids, but certainly they're welcome to become members and get access to those partnerships that we have in place. 
I think uh, the, the unifying factor, or I would say the, the thing that really ties most of our, our members together is really economic status. And so what you find, of course, in America is that folks who tend to get uh, uh, detained, people who are put in prison, who are put in jail, uh, overwhelmingly are low-income folks. Does that mean that they're committing uh, certain crimes uh, more than people with more income? In some cases, yes. But what we see over, uh, over the spectrum, especially with drug crimes, right, is not that there's a higher prevalence of those, uh, those acts in, in, in folks who are lower income, but really that, that it's prosecuted more or that it's um, policed more Policing is different. In, in communities of color and low-income low communities, yeah. that's right. Give us an example, um, a hypothetical one if you want, um, of someone returning to their community and to their family after a period of incarceration and all the myriad changes I mean, and challenges they're going to face when they reintegrate. Sure. So when somebody comes home, uh, there's some differences between if they're coming home from jail, which is usually at the local level, county level, and uh, a prison, which can be at the, at the state level or the federal level. And of course, uh, the more severe crimes right, are, are charged uh, by the federal government and, and uh, down the chain. So we primarily work with folks from the county jails uh, because that's the way sort of California, our state, is, is structured um, in terms of the services that we provide. Uh, but we do get folks from, from prison and, and uh, at the state and federal level as well. And when they're coming home, uh, folks normally only have access, um, if, they don't, if they haven't received uh, abundant support from their family, um, what they had at the moment that they were detained. So they close on their back and uh, a few bucks from the government, usually for transportation and a meal, mm-hmm. and, and then they're sort of put out. Mm-hmm. Um, usually put out at odd times of the day, uh, either uh, very early in the morning or very late at night, uh, so that, uh, at least in, in our area, um, to avoid a whole lot of um, uh, contact, or not even necessarily contact, but... Um, avoid the scene, right, of people being released from prison because that can, right, uh, create some fear amongst the community. Yeah. And so um, there's difficulty even there, right, with then accessing uh, places to stay, um, services immediately upon release, which is something that uh, we've been working on for a number of months in terms of getting people immediately um, to services. And that's really critical because what we find is the first 72 hours uh, when folks are released is extremely important. And the reason is that we actually find a lot of recidivism takes place in that first 72 hours. If you can imagine being, you know, in a concrete cell, you know, bars for, you know, months, years at a time, and then all of a sudden you're back into a community and there's so many things going on, um, you can really get overwhelmed, and uh, people can make bad choices in that state if they don't have proper support, either from family or from the community, the wider community. And uh, we really work to make sure that takes place, that those services, that support is in place uh, for folks coming home. Um, when folks come home, uh, the obvious need right away is housing. 
And the Bay Area, of course, right. has a housing uh, uh, crisis, uh, particularly for um, very low-income people. Uh, not affordable housing, very low-income, uh, which are two different things. So we try to get folks housing. And uh, in, in many cases, uh, there aren't permanent housing choices available. Uh, what that means is folks are going into shelters. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, our shelters are, are overwhelmed as well. And so sometimes folks aren't even able to get immediately into a shelter bed. Uh, sometimes there's extra cots that become available, or sometimes folks simply have to be outside. And as you can imagine, being outside, whether it's summer or winter, but particularly winter, uh, it creates all sorts of additional stress, in which case people can make bad choices. After sort of housing is secured, uh, then, you know, the next thing, of course, right, becomes about your income. Um, You need money to support yourself. And so um, the, the, the search for a job um, and really a career um, is one that can be quite difficult for somebody who has uh, a conviction on their record. Um, it's, it's difficult for folks who um, come from neighborhoods where the schools aren't great to begin with. Um, and secondly, that may not have gone on to get higher education or may not have had very steady job histories in the first place. Uh, but once you get that conviction on your record, um, like some other things, it's, it, it sticks with you for a very long time. And uh, fortunately, California is, is sort of leading the way um, with some changes uh, so that, or excuse me, at least the Bay Area is leading the way um, with some changes to uh, what employers do and do not look at, uh, particularly public employers. But um, San Francisco, uh, as one example, has gone to uh, make that uh, background checks for private employers also some, something that's done in a process where uh, folks who have a conviction get a fair shot mm-hmm. at, at those uh, employment prospects. So um, we work on uh, addressing some of the barriers to getting into employment, some of the barriers that exist to getting education. Um, and once we start people uh, into those processes where they're, they're able to find housing, they're able to find some income, uh, there's a host of other issues that come up. And so at the Reentry Success Center, we sort of order our services in eight general areas. Mm-hmm. And those are family, finances, education, employment, housing, health and wellness, um, benefits, and legal services. So California has made real progress in recent years in breaking down the over-incarceration state. Um, so in 2011, it passed something called realignment that moved a lot of low-level felony, conv- uh, felony offenders from state prison to community and county supervision, so they're closer to services and their families. Um, In 2012, we passed Prop 36, which reformed three strikes. In 2014, we passed Prop 47 that reclassified six low-level felonies as misdemeanors. And last year, in 2016, we passed Prop 57, which makes it easier for folks incarcerated to get parole and take some power that was previously given to prosecutors and gives it to judges instead. Tell us about how those changes, either individually or as a whole, has um, affected the community you serve. 
Well, I think just to, to be very brief about it, it means we have a lot more business, right? <laughs> yeah. So um, a lot of folks, instead of sitting in a cell, are uh, back in the community, which is a great thing. Um, as I, we kind of touched on, uh, you know, when folks are in jail, in, in, in prison, a lot of times more harm is being done than good. Um, and uh, in terms of discouraging certain behaviors, it, it can be much better accomplished out in the community with the Reentry Success Center than um, if they're in jail. I think in terms of criminal justice reform, uh, where we really want to go um, is, I think, less about you know what happens on the back end. Um, we kind of have those answers, and really more about uh, the front end. And as uh, we kind of talked about earlier, reentry starts way earlier than um, when you're getting out of jail. And so, a couple of things in particular: uh, the bail system. Right. Um, you know. A lot of legislators are already kind of aware of the, the discrepancy there uh, with folks who have money, they're able to get out. Folks who don't have money are not, uh, sort of regardless of the risk they pose. Right. Two-thirds of people in county jails nationwide are pretrial, mm-hmm. which basically means they haven't been convicted yet. They're sitting there because they can't pay their way out un- while they're awaiting adjudication. That's absolutely right. And and. I mean, the fact that they're in county jail tells you these are low-level crimes. And uh, usually um, these folks uh, would, would happily come back to court um, if that meant they didn't have a risk of, of going to jail, um, as most people would. And so the bail system, as it's, as it's currently um, in place, uh, again, does not accomplish necessarily the goal that it sets out to do. Uh, but what it does do is create some of these adverse impacts on people's lives. They lose their jobs, you know, kids who, who need their parents, right, for supervision, for love, um, aren't able to have that contact. So that really needs to be uh, reformed. And fortunately, there's some stuff out there that's, that's happening. Um, there's some other states that, that are really ahead of California on bail reform. Uh, but that's a great place to... Um, to start. Uh, Another thing that needs to happen, even actually a little bit uh, ahead of bail reform, is how we look at drug use and substance abuse. And right now, um, there's a lot that's happening in terms of punishment of drug abuse, right? And we tend to look down on folks, right? But what we have to recognize that addiction is a sickness, you don't look down on somebody who has a flu because they're not able to go to work, right? Because they, they're cranky, right? When someone has a sickness, it's a public health issue. It's that simple. It's a public health issue. And when we start treating people as though they have a, a, a sickness and an illness that can be cured, that can be rehabilitated, rather than it's somehow a personality trait that is going to be with them forever and that they deserve to be punished for, uh, we'll, be, we'll be much further along because many, many people, um, I would venture to say the majority, although I, I, I can't cite a statistic, uh, commit crimes when they're uh, using drugs. They're not using their right mind. If they weren't drunk, you know, if they weren't high, 
uh, they probably wouldn't be doing the thing that they were doing that's illegal mm -hmm. or trying to get money to feed that addiction. So if we can deal with that addiction, if we can deal with the illness, then we'll really uh, do a lot of good in progressing towards eliminating or reducing um, some of the crimes that take place, particularly the property crimes. It's an upstream solution to those problems. It's an upstream solution. We'll save a lot of money. We'll save a lot of lives. The value of this work doesn't just lie in helping people heal, getting them back on their feet, helping families and communities come back together. From a more hard-boiled numbers approach, all of this work reduces recidivism, right? So California has um, one of the highest recidivism rates in the country. According to one Pew report, it has the second highest in the country. Um, does the recidivism rate you see among your client population go down because of the services you're able to provide them? Well, it's, it's a little too early to tell okay. right now. Um, there's a, a number of ways to look at recidivism, uh, whether you look at you know, convictions as uh, the definition versus arrests, um, whether you look at a year or three years. We're a little bit over uh, a year old, uh, but you know, all the, the folks that we work with didn't come in on day one, right? right. So um, me being a GSPP graduate, uh, I, I'm familiar with how to make sure that our, our, our statistics are pretty uh, accurate. And so we're not, we're not ready to really compare uh, to a larger uh, sample uh, or larger population. But uh, what we do know uh, about recidivism is that absolutely it goes down when you have the proper supports in place, and that's what we're doing at the center. California's recidivism rate is somewhere around 55, 60%. Um, and the recidivism rate, that's a, that's a return to prison for a felony offender after, within three years. The recidivism rate for folks who receive substance abuse and mental health counseling after release is around 20, 25%, right? So the sort of services you're providing don't just help people heal. They save society, you know, to be cold-hearted about it, money in the long run um, and make communities safer. Right. So whether you are doing it for moral and ethical reasons, right. whether exactly. you're doing it for fiscal reasons, there's all sorts of reasons that this makes sense. The investment is worth it. And, you know... What I would uh, say also is that if we're honest with ourselves, right, in many cases we're doing more harm by putting folks into, into jail and prison than we are good. And so we have to ask ourselves as a, as a society, um, what purpose are we serving with our system of criminal justice? And I think for too long... Uh, it, it's been really about uh, punishment, punishment. Yeah. Um, and, and not really making our society better, not really about justice, not really about uh, uh, fairness and ethics. It's been about punishment. And if we intend to punish someone, why, why are we punishing them, right? And what do we intend the, pun intend the punishment to accomplish? And if we look at those things, and they don't match up, right? If we, if we want punishment to prevent, right, this sort of behavior from uh, reoccurring, and it's actually making it reoccur more frequently, well, then we're working backwards, right? So um, when we talk about recidivism, uh, when we talk about reforms to criminal justice, we really need to look on the front end of this and say, hey, uh, some alternatives to incarceration are really in order here. How does... 
your Goldman education, how does having an MPP in your back pocket affect your work on a day-to-day basis? Sure. So being in a, in a uh, services type environment uh, is not the, the typical uh, career trajectory for a Goldman graduate. And I'm very aware of that um, on, a, on a daily basis. But I'm so glad to have that education because when I leave my office, right, and I have to go advocate, uh, whether it's before the city council or whether it's before the um, county supervisors or even in Sacramento, right, um, individual stories, right, anecdotal evidence only goes so far. And uh, when the rubber hits the road, right, folks want to see facts, they want to see statistics, and uh, they want to see really in-depth policy analysis. And so I have it, and I can give it to them. And also, um, when I need to be critical about uh, some other policies that, that policy proposals that are coming out to make things better, um, I'm able to do that too. So um, on the day-to-day with the center, um, it's, it's, it's less important to implementing certain models um, aside from just being an analytical thinker. Um, and it's more important about being able to uh, affect a larger systems change. So before you came to Goldman, you were a labor and community organizer. And I think that's an unusual profile for a lot of Goldman students. We're sort of supposedly anyway, more likely to hit the spreadsheets than hit the streets. I thought of that in advance. I thought it would, that's clever. I thought it would come off better than it did. Um, so... How do you think having an organizing background made you a different or more well-rounded, perhaps, Goldman student? And how does having an MPP provide value in an organizing context? I think whether it's an organizing background or it's services or it's marketing or any really sort of professional experience um, is great to have coming into graduate school because it gives you a better perspective perspective on how you might use the skills that you um, are attaining. And it gives you a perspective and focus on what you want to learn about. Um, and in my case, uh, with organizing, right, um, and labor organizing uh, specifically, um, it helped me to, to sort of focus on uh, what I wanted to achieve here and in a, in a university as, as big with so many resources and so many, you know, bright minds um, to figure out who, who do I need to talk to, right? And who do I need to um, sort of follow around and, and try to urge them to be my mentor. So, um, of course, for me, I ended up at the Labor Center a lot, um, which is a wonderful resource here on campus. Um, I ended up actually over at the, the School of Economics a little bit um, and trying to learn more of the skills that I needed um, to have an effect, have effective counter, counterpoints um, to what I heard um, from my opponents when I was doing labor labor organizing, um, and so sort of on the on the flip side of that, right? Um, if one was going into organizing, um, which I still do a fair amount of community organizing right. um, with the reentry population. It's still important to have those same skills, um, excuse me, the, the, the Goldman skill set, in the sense that right, hitting the streets is not enough. 
Um, it, it's good to rile people up. It's good to, um, it's good to get people um, aware of the issues, uh, but that's not enough, right? We need answers. Uh, we, need, we need specific proposals. And uh, what you find is that um, a lot of the answers do exist. Uh, and, and I was even surprised by the amount of answers that already exist um, after coming to Goldman and, and reading all these great papers and meeting all these great professors. And um, so you need the organizing and the, and the policy analysis to be more integrated. And if all the you know, uh, analysts are hitting the spreadsheets and in their, <laughs> in their offices and all the organizers are in the streets and they ever talk, well, you know, we Everyone's get, uh, effect. Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, lots of young advocates, activists, organizers that I speak with assume that if they're going to take their work and their advocacy to the next level, they have to go get that JD. That's their default answer. How would you respond to someone in that situation and, and convince them of the value of the MPP instead? Sure. Well, um, I'm married to an attorney. I think they're great people. <laughs> You're speaking to one right now. I'm speaking to one right now. But I put the MPP first in my MPP JD. Oh, okay. Well, that's, um, that's encouraging to know. <laughs> so what I find uh, when doing this work is that the, the number of folks with an MPP who really have a good grasp of uh, statistical analysis, uh, policy analysis, are few in number. And the number of attorneys can fill up dozens of rooms, right? And, of course, it takes great attorneys to be effective, uh, but it also takes great uh, analysts. And so not only does that mean that analysts are needed, right, or, or, or policy folks are needed, um, it also means you kind of have your choice of jobs, right? So um, if you're in demand, you're in demand, and you can kind of um, choose where you fit in and you can also um, sort of move up the ladder pretty rapidly, I think. And so I think that's, um, that's a great reason. Um, I also think that attorneys have to work in a much more sort of rigid framework in the sense, right, we have to work within the law as it exists. And uh, policy analysts, we don't have that same... Uh, uh, framework that, I mean, of course we have restrictions, but um, there's a little bit more room for creativity. And I think uh, for somebody, at least like me, uh, I need a little more space to, yeah. to, to be loose. I think attorneys are more likely to operate with a built-in set of limitations in yeah. their head because of what the law says or they think the law says. Absolutely. Yeah, you have more room to roam, I think, mm-hmm. and think creatively. Thanks so much for joining us. Sure. It was really a pleasure. Thanks very much for tuning into In the Arena. Check us out next time.